Hey, thanks for coming back on, folks, and checking us out. Tuning in to the Live Life Aggressively show. It's another week. I'm your host, Sincere Hogan, and my co-host, Mike Maul, is on the other line. What's going on, dude? Oh, I'm doing great, man. I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. It's a guy oh, yeah. I've known for a long time, man. We always bring the best strength coaches in the business on oh, the yeah. show. We've had Charles Poliquin. We've had Ian King. We've had Dan John. We just we just look for the best and we bring them on. We're not looking for flavors of the month strength coaches. So often we'll get rec- we'll get people recommending certain people. Nah. <laughs> first of all, you're very generous by saying flavor of the month. I, I say more flavor of the week. <laughs> more like that, man. So people who do a lot of name dropping, you know, things yeah, like that. <laughs> which we were just talking to our guest today about exactly. how he hates to do that, even though he does train a lot of high profile people. But anyway, we're going to get to him in a second. Before we do that, I want to do some VIP shout outs for some great listeners that have been using that coupon code LLA to get 10% off some great products at MikeMahler.com. We have Corey Burks, David Wimberley, Stephanie Duffel, Matt Fultz, Benjamin Hunt, Jordan Kramer, Gary Simpkin, Kyle Brown, John Robinson, and Fidel Chavez. They're all using that coupon code LLA. They're picking up my new Adrenal Energy product, Red, hey, over at MikeMahler.com. I popped two of those before she went yesterday. Man. Yeah. yeah, it's the stuff. I it's did really, it for my squats yesterday, and it felt way different. I'm just like, oh, good, and, and I, stacked, subtle, though, it, I it? stacked it with the testosterone booster and green tea. So it was just like, man, I was feeling nice. awesome. Yeah, funny you bring up green tea because I want to add that to my estrogen blocker next time I do another run, which will oh, probably okay. be pretty soon. Just get 100 milligrams of green tea because that also has some anti-estrogenic properties, and then it also has – some energetic properties as well. So that'll be a nice combo in there. But yeah, I do the same thing. I take two caps of ASTP B and then two caps of red about an hour before training. The red is subtle. So it's not something where you're not going to pop two caps and be all stimulated because it's a non-stimulant energy yeah. product. It's not so a monster drink people, or something like that, a red yeah, bull. Exactly. <laughs> you have to remember that's all fake energy. When you yeah. take something and you get this big high of energy, that's you're, you're going to have the inevitable crash later. So you're just borrowing fake energy now and you're going to have to pay it back and then some it's later. kind of like the chick that's at the bar and you know she knows that you're <laughs> going to buy her a drink so she sits there and she tolerates all your bad comp pickup lines <laughs> until she gets a drink and then she and you have to buy it for the rest of her girlfriends and then they all disappear and go to dance one dance together that was fake energy dude it's kind of like, like that cougar sincere who bought you a few drinks and then you, you know you're going to have to pay that back at some point <laughs> dude I got to give her some fake energy <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah. anything going on with Patreon or anything on your end you want to yeah, discuss? Yeah, so, uh, you know, also another VIP, David Nicholson over in the UK using that coupon code LLA over at NewWarriorTraining.com. Thanks, David. Had a little mishap. Um, getting him on and getting him into the the system doing the, the weight management course, but he's enjoying that, man. So other folks, you know, hop on that. It's springtime. It's warming up outside. It's time to get out of all those layers of clothes. And, you know, but the thing is, some of you haven't seen what's going on underneath those clothes in the last <laughs> five or six layers. months. So once you take off that, you might be... You might be in for a little surprise, so it's time to take take charge of that and hand over, you know, go over to my site and pick up that course and get back on track with your training, man. And get outside. I mean, it's warm out there, it's feeling good. Get out there and make use of all this good weather that's coming about, folks. And also over at Patreon, I want to give a shout out to our latest VIP over there is John Robinson. Um, John's a big supporter of the show, big fan of the show. Um, remember he reached out, I think, on our fan page as well as my personal page. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah and he, he became a new member on Patreon and supporting us on a monthly basis. And guess what, folks? You can do the same thing. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash LLA podcast and become a monthly supporter. Five dollars, ten dollars, more dollars. It's all up to you. Make it happen. All right. 
Yeah, so we have a great guest today. It's Christian Thibodeau, one of the best strength coaches around. And I've actually known Christian since 2003. We taught a course together in Portland, Oregon, early in my career in 2004, and that was a lot of fun. I think pretty much all of the students stayed at our host's house. It was a little, <laughs> little party over there afterwards. That was a fun weekend. And he's also the author of The Black Book of Training Secrets and High Threshold Muscle Building, two different books that he put out a while back. And he's a regular contributor to T-Nation. Yeah. Christian, how are you doing today, man? Pretty good. Uh, it's nice to speak to you. I mean, this time I actually can speak English compared to last time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because I, rem- I actually remember that party. It was at uh, Patricia Smith. Yeah, yeah, Patricia, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the thing I remember was you drinking a beer on the Indu board. <laughs> that had a great balance, man. I had a joint in my hand, too. I don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was some fun. That was a fun time. Patricia's a great lady. I haven't talked to her in a long time either, but she was a great host and a very gifted athlete herself. Very strong lady. Yeah, it could be in bodybuilding also. Yeah, yeah. She had a really impressive deadlift. I think she weighed maybe. 120 or something like that and she was deadlifting either 400 or close to it yeah that's pretty impressive yeah yeah really strong lady and her, i don't know if she's still with the same guy but a really cool guy too i forget his name but super cool guy and that actually a guy's name yeah I don't, <laughs> <laughs> you never do <laughs> Why would you? uh joel marion was there at that course too yeah, and yeah, a few yeah, other yeah. people actually that that went on to become pretty well-known writers so that was a fun event now You've been up to a lot recently, but I've, I've got a few questions actually for you that, that popped in my head about training. I, you know, one, one thing I'm finding, Christian, is that I like to go sprinting a couple times a week, and I do 100 I – I mean I do 10 100-yard dashes. And then right afterwards, I'll do some heavy kettlebell presses, double kettlebell presses. And I always find that I'm stronger after the sprinting. I feel fatigued, but the weights just fly overhead. And my theory is maybe I've activated more type 2 muscle fibers. Maybe I've just activated the nervous system. Maybe it's psychological or a combination of the above. But is, is this, has this something like this, something similar to this? Has this ever, have you ever experienced this with yourself or anyone you train? Oh, yeah, totally. Actually, I myself did a lot of track work about, I would say, eight years ago. And I always had the same kind of phenomenon when I was sprinting. And then I, I went on doing my Olympic lift afterwards. Uh, I think that uh, it's a matter of, first of all, you're right, you're activating the fast twitch fibers, making the neuromuscular junction probably more sensitive to the neural impulse. Yeah. Uh, you also obviously potentiate the nervous system, which is, in my opinion, one of the biggest secret weapon you can have with training. Uh, and also, obviously, sprinting loosens you up. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and I, one thing I've I, I've learned the past three years with wa- working with CrossFit athletes, we do a lot of mobility work. Is that you know being able to reach perfect body position uh, without any effort actually increases your strength greatly. The mm-hmm. problem is that most people, when they, they they have very good mobility, they have mostly inactive mobility, so they lack the stability to be able to showcase their strength. Right. And sprinting by activating the muscles, but also making them uh, more supple, increasing range of motion, you probably put your body in the best possible situation to be able to use all your resources. And the last thing would be, in my opinion, that sprinting probably jacks up your natural adrenaline right. more yeah. so than any type of training. So you have the perfect blend to perform uh, high, high intensity work, uh, explosive work, strength work. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible 
No, go ahead. Something that you would suggest to like, let's just say someone who's an intermediate or a beginner. What would you suggest to them? Because I'm pretty sure there's those folks listening to the show right now who are in that category. And they're like, well, maybe I should go out and do 10 sprints and then, you know, start my heavy, you know, squat session, pressing session. I think that volume management is very important when it comes to sprinting. I mean, I go back to my days when I was actually what happened is that when I finished competing in Olympic weightlifting, I was looking for another sport to compete in. And I looked at the standards of the Canadian bobsleigh team because I train a guy on the national team. And I said, well, I can probably top most of these guys on the power clean, front squat, and bench press. The only thing I'm missing is the sprinting speed. Mm-hmm. So I started training sprint with that guy. And what I noticed, you know, I, I'm a, I was at that time, I'm not anymore, but I was a very high volume guy. I mean, two hours and a half, three hours training session, very short break. I mean, I, I have very high tolerance for intensity work. But when we got to sprinting, we would train, we would do like, four to six 60 meter dash that's it and we had like five minutes between said that was very very odd to me but what i find is that these guys the sprinters are master at neurological management they really want to avoid any type of neuromuscular fatigue so that they can maximize performance obviously and minimize fatigue right and i think that uh, with sprints, most people tend to overdo the volume, the number of, uh, of, of sets. And the shorter the distance, actually, the, the lower the amount of sets you should be doing. Like for 60 meters, well, I think that beginners right off the bat should, might not start with 100 meters because it's hard to maintain perfect form over 100 meter. I would say that the 100 meter all out dash would be like doing an all out set of power snatches for six reps. Hmm. You, you, technique will break down as fatigue sets in. So yeah, most people, right. when they a sprint 100 meter, they will have a breakdown in technique at about the 60 meter mark, which is about the point where even elite sprinter start to slow down and, and, and stop accelerating. You know, when you see a race and uh, let's say Usain Bolt, like flashes past everybody at the 60 meter mark, it's not that he's accelerating more so than the other guys. He's just decelerating less. Mm-hmm. So what I think is that uh, people who are like not as efficient sprinting wise would probably be better off sprinting 30 to maybe 50 meters at a time to avoid any kind of technical breakdown. Uh, and you, you'll get the same potentiation effect on the nervous system and you'll have less fatigue. So the, the positive impact on your workout will be very, very easy to see. And I would probably start with four to five sprints for these level of guys. I mean, Mike, you're in a great shape and you've been. Some internet issues on my end. Hopefully that won't happen again. But we, we were, you, we were, we left off right at where you were telling me that, hey, you know, you've been sprinting for a while. You have good yeah. techniques. You can handle the yeah. volume. But someone who's a beginner should start off with less volume. Yeah. So I, I guess you you missed the part where I called you a green dot, right? <laughs> Let's definitely start there. <laughs> yes. So I think that the the really important thing. Uh, when a more of a beginner kind of guy starts including sprints in his workout. Uh, it's really to focus on perfect technique and acceleration. Yeah. When you feel that you're losing that edge, uh, you start to feel heavy on on the track, then you should stop because you'll have more drawback than positive effect. So yeah. it's really about technique and acceleration. And then as you become in better shape and more efficient at running, you can increase the distance or the number of sets. 
I think what gets people in trouble is they use sprinting as a fat loss yeah. workout, right? Metabolic conditioning. So they're thinking, you know, just fight through the fatigue, just fight through the bad technique, and then just keep going. So maybe they did the first four rounds with good technique in their fatigue, and they think, okay, now the workout's really starting. Let me just gut it out and keep going. That's a good point, and I think it's it's a valid point with many, many methods we use uh, in, in North America, for example, plyometrics. Right. When plyometrics were seen for a long time as the Russian secret, Soviet secret. And what happened is that when you properly do a set of plyometrics, you don't feel any fatigue, either muscular or uh, metabolic fatigue. So, and you don't have any metabolite accumulation or lactic acid. You, you don't feel neurally drained. So uh, the natural reaction here is that we do more and more and more because in our mind, if we don't get drained, if you're not drenched in sweat, then you're not training, you're not creating a training effect. Whereas with plyometrics and sprinting, it's all about making sure that every single repetition is done with maximum acceleration and perfect technique. As soon as you have a drop-off in performance, uh, then you need to stop because you're not training the right thing. What actually can happen is that the uh, the 2B fast switch fibers, the really most powerful, strongest fibers, when you start to do explosive work, speed work in a fatigue state, these fibers will start to convert to the 2A fiber types, mm. which isn't that bad if all you care about is being muscular. But if you want to be a high-performance machine, being able to be fast, quick, explosive, it can be a very big problem. Yeah, that, that makes that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, you must find this problem quite a bit with CrossFit people. You work with a lot of CrossFit athletes. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that you have to help them change their, their mindsets? Well, actually, it's uh, the athletes I work with – uh, are, are naturally smart for some reason. I, mean, I guess I've been lucky in that regard. I mean, I had. Hey, you're attracting <laughs> what you are, right? <laughs> well, no, I'm not, maybe. Uh, naturally, it's it's like I, what I've seen is that the, the actual the best CrossFit athletes, those who perform the best in competition, have a natural gift for pacing yeah. themselves. Right. That they makes they sense. know when they need to push hard in a workout. They know when they, sh they need to take a break or just push a little less intensely. Uh, and they do that naturally. And some of them actually, uh, they, they study that. That's why, for example, it's, it's the CrossFit Open yeah. right now. And many people are like, they wait until the last day to do the workout because they want to study exactly what's the best way to perform the workout with the least amount of energy expenditure, wasted energy and accumulation of uh, metabolite like lactic acid uh, or stuff like that. Uh, so it's not just about who can push the hardest for the longest. It's about those who pace themselves properly for the type of work that's being done. For yeah. example, one type of training I really like with CrossFit athlete is I would call that like on the verge lactic acid training. Basically, you, you do intense work until you start to feel a very slight accumulation of lactic acid, but you stop at that point. You stop. You cannot let lactic acid accumulate. You rest long enough just so that the acid lactic burn gets away. Then you resume your set and you can extend that for 15, 20 minutes. But the rule is to always stop before you accumulate lactate, lactate in a muscle. 
that will build work capacity and will also help you learn when you need to push and when you need to, to, to pace yourself. And it also over time will help you delay the accumulation of lactic acid in your body. So when you train like that over time, uh, you will it will take a lot longer for you to build lactic acid even when you push as hard as possible. Yeah, that pacing, is, I think, is something that a lot of people have a hard time grasping because ten, people well, tend to be impatient. And also people tend to train as if there there's a timer going. It's like I got to get these reps in before fatigue yeah, well, builds. You know, you're trying to outrun <laughs> fatigue. But that, that's the, that, the CrossFit has many, many positive sides. I mean, it, it turns people into like competitors. I mean, right, they right. want to beat themselves. The problem is that they take that to the extreme. Uh, and that's not just for the wads. It's for the strength lift. When I look at m the way most CrossFit people train, not the highest level athlete, but the wannabe athletes, yeah. when they train for strength, it's testing their 1RM or testing their 2RM. It's, they don't train strength. Right. They test strength. Uh, training is not testing. Yeah. When you train, it's not to see how much you can do, how fast you can go, how heavy you can lift. Right. You train physical capacities. And the thing with CrossFit is that they, they, they want to beat the top guy. For example, uh, one guy I work with, uh, Alex Vigneault, who's currently ranked uh, second in Canada. He's, he finished 11th at the Games last year. And he has several training partners. And during training, the guys hang with him. They train in the, the same times. Yet, when it times to compete, they, they, they cannot hang with him. Why? Because he always trained at like 85% of his maximum, right. regardless of the physical capacity. These guys have to push themselves to the max to follow him. So they burn themselves out and they don't get the same training effect. Yeah. Right. I think people at the salient point you made there is that a lot of people are trying to demonstrate strength every time they mm -hmm. work out instead of building strength. There's a big difference between the two. We see this all the time in the gym where every week someone's maxing out on deadlifts mm -hmm. and they're going nowhere. Most of the time, they're not even maintaining that. It's actually declining. They're getting weaker each time. No, I actually, that's probably one. And the deadlift of all lifts is the stupidest lift to be doing that strategy. And no I, doubt. I mean, I've been like rereading some of uh, Louis stuff, Louis Simmons. And one thing you mentioned that, I, and I, I can vouch for that hundred percent, is that when you max out on a lift after three weeks your form, your performance will degrade. No doubt. It will totally degrade. And I've, I've seen that myself. Yeah. I'll give you an example. You know, I'm, some, I'm a guy who likes to blitz things. For example, for three weeks in the past, that's, that's how I would train. I would focus on, on a few lifts for three weeks, trying to push them as high as possible. Then I would switch to something else. Now, I honestly thought that it was because it was a good strategy. In reality is that after three weeks, my form degraded and I lost performance. I decided to go to something else instinctively, but yeah. it wasn't. It, I just pushed myself too hard. On uh, one time, you know, I was at the T Nation headquarters and I was uh, doing snatch grip eye pulls uh, up to about the clavicle, and I, I went up to 120 kilos. And, and Tim Patterson walked in and he said, "Well, that's a very impressive lift. I mean, it's violent, it's fast, it's quick, and it's moving a lot of weight." I mean, it would be cool to film to film something like really impressive, like like 180 kilos, four plates. Well, I said my my max is like 125, <laughs> so I don't think 180. So so he looked at me and said, it, "It would be really interesting if you kept your job." He didn't say that, but <laughs> it. So for 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 three weeks, all I did two days uh, twice a day snatch grip pipe pull twice a day, 
And after three weeks, I actually did the 180 kilos hypo. Wow. But what happened is that after that, even though I kept training the hypo and Olympic lifts, I could not even approach 180. The heaviest I went to was 165, and it didn't take long until 150 was hard. And I got stronger. I mean, my legs were stronger. My shoulder was stronger. So it's not like I was losing strength. It's just that the movement actually got overtrained, uh, desensitized neural fatigue on that specific lift. Yeah. yeah. Neural fatigue can be general, but it can also affect a specific motor pattern. And, okay. and for, for those of you out there who are like a little off when it comes to the metric system here in um, the U.S., when he says 180 kilos, yeah, that's 400, 400 pounds, people. So don't say like, oh, 180, I can do that. No, calm down and convert that. Yeah. Put that 2.2 <laughs> on there when you calculate, buddy. <laughs> well, most probably can't even do that. Now, now, do you find you find that there's a different frequency that's optimal for most lifts? For example, with myself, I can deadlift probably every two weeks and at the worst maintain and more likely actually get stronger. Yeah. While something like pressing, overhead pressing, I have to press frequently several times a week to get stronger. If I do it once a week, I'm going to get weaker. Twice a week, forget it. You almost feel like you're starting all over again. No, I totally agree with that. I would say that any kind of lift – that is done to overhead, in my mm -hmm. opinion, uh, especially when done standing. You have to practice it often. To me, the overhead press and the push press are definitely lifts. And if I want them to go up, I need to train them frequently. Yeah. Uh, same thing with the snatch. It, 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 right now, I, I focused on the Olympic lifts for about, uh, well, maybe four months, five months. And I decided to switch gears a bit. I mean, s still training the Olympic lift, but at a much lower frequency. And focus on getting my, my, my core strength up, my glutes, lower back, quads, all that stuff, get, get them stronger. And, and what I noticed is that even though I am stronger, my deadlift's up, my, my good morning is up, all that stuff is up, my squat is up, my ex more explosive, yet this morning my power snatch was really, really off. And it's not that I'm not as strong. It, it seems like a movement that has to be done in a precise line especially over your head, you need to practice it often. I mean, the overhead press, if you press like one inch in front of the proper corridor, yeah. you double the, the effort you need to produce. To That's right. Make the lift. It's not like a bench press. I mean, a bench press, you can probably train it once a week, and that, that's fine. It will go up. Yeah. I mean, and you're even personally my squat, I can train it every two weeks, and it will go up. Right. Uh, it, it's for me, it's a simple movement, but the overhead press, it has to be trained very often. And I find that the more often I do it, uh, the better my shoulders yes. feel, yeah. especially, but, but I think that the problem, most people can't overhead press often for one simple reason is that they don't know how to overhead press. I mean, they think, well, it, it's pretty simple to just press a barbell over your head. The problem is that the barbell is pressed in front of them. So it, it, they never take the barbell in the right position, which is right like uh, behind your yeah. hairline. Right. So they, they should they feel like you're opening a window through, and sticking yeah. your head out. Like exactly. Yeah. Like peek yeah. through the window. Otherwise, yeah. that way, it's the traps and upper back that do most of the stabilizing work at the top. Whereas right. if you leave the barbell in front of you, it's all front delt, and there's tremendous amount of stress on that shoulder joint. Right. People complain about their lower back pain after doing what they thought was an overhead press, but it was really a standing incline press right. or, or standing bench press. You know? But then again, it, that brings up an interesting issue is that most people, they just don't have the proper shoulder mobility right. to do the lift safely. So they need to do it often, 
but they don't have the proper mobility. That's why, for example, I really like uh, the Savikas press to train uh, the overhead press because you have to press in the right position. If you leave the bar in front of you, you'll fall backward. Can you, can you and, describe and, that? Can yeah. you describe that press? Uh, Civicus press. It's a it's a it's a military press, strict press, done seated on the floor with legs extended. Oh, okay. So it, it, it involves the core a lot, and but it, you absolutely have to press behind you. Otherwise, if you leave the barbell in front and you right. take decent one weight, you'll fall back. Well, you, you find that with seated presses, right? Sincere seated kettlebell presses. I mean, if you press those oh, in front of you, you're going to fall back. Exactly. <laughs> you're going to fall back. You're going to fall back. You're just, so you pretty much have to. I think do it's right. one of, and using that technique yeah. actually doing it on, uh, doing it seated actually is a good way to kind of get someone's mindset about the whole peeking through the window thing. Cause now they really see it's a necessity where standing, they kind of have something to fall back mm-hmm. on by standing up. So they always have that, 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 that security of knowing mm-hmm. that if they lean back and stay back, they're not going to fall necessarily if they tighten their, you know, their glutes and they don't have to worry about that. But when you're seated, you know, you start training yourself like, okay, I need to peek through. Otherwise, this is not going to end well. So I think that's a good way to. Exactly. And, and I, I like the kettlebells for this just because the kettlebells actually help you even more get behind you yes, because of the right. position of weight. The off-centered weight. Yeah. It makes that, that's one thing I find too. Kettlebell presses. I have this, I have this issue with my left elbow. So a lot of overhead presses are, are difficult to painful for me right now, but kettlebell presses, I can keep it in a certain groove and they feel mm-hmm. great. I can find the right pathway for each arm. And then the off-centered weight does pull it back at the lockout. So you have a nice fixated lockout with right where you want it to be. No, it's a great – even for example, just most isolation exercises, I'm doing them with kettlebells now. I mean I recently found oh, that, like, that lying kettlebell tricep extension is by far, by far the best triceps builder I've ever tried. You do it with one kettlebell in each hand or is it two yeah, hands one on one? Hand, yeah, okay, one okay, interesting. It's by far, and, and and I feel that you can actually also work with shoulder mobility by trying to bring uh, your hand back even more so. The, so the, the elbows are not just pointing straight up; they're like pointing uh, toward your head. So that work on shoulder I mobility see. and it stretches the triceps more. And doing curls with kettlebells give you a much better peak contraction. And do, doing them also uh, like bottoms up style, like doing hammer curls, but keeping the the bell in front of your hand also work tremendous grip strength, brachialis involvement. So I think that for many, many isolation exercises, they work better than dumbbells. Oh, you're going to have a lot gosh. of happy guys listening right now. Like, oh, man, Christian said I should be doing kettlebell. <laughs> like, finally, yeah. well, actually, it, I'm going to go put up a clip right now. <laughs> it's funny because I was – since I'm training mostly CrossFit athletes right now, yeah. I'm doing most of my training at CrossFit gyms. And uh, out of the four that I go to normally, they, only one has dumbbells. So most of my isolation work when I do it, it, it has to be done with kettlebells because that's – that or nothing, that or elastic bands. Uh, so that's how I discovered these exercises. And most of them feel great. The lateral rays felt, feel better in my shoulders than mm-hmm. dumbbells. Yeah. For some reason, I couldn't explain why, but they just feel better. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to play around with some of those things. Now, what's your take on the core? Because that's that's very controversial. We've had a lot of different strength coaches on the show. Ian King's a big fan of doing additional core work. Charles Poliquin says you get all the core work you need essentially from heavy deadlifts and squats, so he doesn't add a bunch in. Where, where do you fall on the spectrum? Uh, I believe uh, that it depends on the person. Uh, I mean, it's true that in an optimal condition, deadlifts, Olympic lifts, squats, overhead press, they, they work the core to a great extent if you know how to use your core. Right. Right. 
the problem is that most people, especially those who are like desk jockeys or something like that, yeah. they, they don't have good mind muscle connection with either the abdominals and the lower back tend to be tend to be more tight and tensed. So, so they have bad core mechanics. They don't use it properly when they do the big lifts. So while in theory, if you are really functional, uh, the big lift will hit your abdominals and core tremendously. The problem is that most people don't know how to use these muscles while doing the big lifts, right? So then there's also the issue. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, the, the deadlift work your posterior chain, right? Right. So does it mean that you don't need to do any posterior chain work? Does it mean that? I mean, if you want your deadlift to go up, most people will need to work the posterior chain. Right. I mean, if you want to, at one point, if you're doing squats, it will go up for a while, but eventually your weak point will hold you back. Yeah. So what do you do? You do work for that weak point. Just doing more squatting won't necessarily do it. Doing more squatting more often will improve uh, intro and inter intermuscular coordination. It yeah. will improve rate coding, muscle recruitment. But if you have one weak muscle that is holding you back, it won't improve that weak muscle because the stronger muscle will always take over. Right. So you will need to use exercises to correct those weak points. So what if your core is your weak link? Right. Even though technically these muscles are involved in the big lift, if they are your weak point, it is your weak point, then you need specific work for the core, in my opinion. So I'm not a guy who, who prescribed tons of core work automatically. That, that's not me. But if somebody has a weak core, then we will definitely, definitely do a lot of work to make it stronger so that it's not a weak point anymore. And from what I've seen, most people who want to get stronger tend to have two points, two weak points that are very, very frequent. It's a weak core. And by core, I also include glutes. In my opinion, it works together. Right. And a weak grip. These are the two elements that most people, it will, it will hold them back. It will hold them back. So, and also look at the strongest powerlifters, right? The strongest powerlifters, they do core work. They don't do like this fancy, uh, like things you see on YouTube with trainers who are 150 pounds and deadlifting 180. <laughs> but they are doing heavy abdominal work. They are doing heavy glutes work. They are doing lower back work, reverse cypher, stuff like that. In my opinion, that region can never be too strong. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. All right. One, one of the strongest person I work with is a CrossFit athlete. Uh, the guy is not a big guy. He's like 205 on, on 5'11", 6 foot. Uh, but he snatches 300. Uh, he clean and jerks 385. Wow. Uh, and he deadlifts uh, 620. That's great. Uh, so very, very strong. The guy literally has no leg muscle, almost no arm muscle. Mm. But he has the well, he looks athletic, but uh, not like what I would call big muscles. But when you look at the size of his torso, I mean, the guy is super lean, but the, the abdominals, the obliques, the lower back, it's like it's wider than the shoulders almost. I'm exaggerating, but it, it, it gives an idea. In, and in CrossFit, they do a lot of core work. I'm not saying that he's just if you do a lot of core work, you'll clean. Well, feet. a lot of the old-time strongmen had yeah. that look, really thick waist. Exactly. That's the look I'm talking about. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And obviously, these guys didn't do crunches. They didn't do side band or right. stuff like right, that. Right. But then again, they, they did band press. They did uh, all many, many stuff like 
pressing overhead with a bent torso uh, or deadlift with one arm. So to me, that that is core work. Yeah, I mean, a lot, it, lot of course, heavy one arm dumbbell yeah. presses, things like that. Exactly, like a suitcase deadlift, a one one hand deadlift from uh, in front of you. All these movements, snatches with one hand, which was one of my favorite exercises. Yeah, uh, single arm clean and press. I mean, these things are amazing core exercises. I think the other issue with a lot of people is that they overuse equipment, right? They use a ch- I mean, I've seen people who are who are not even close to being strong who have really thick training belts they use on deadlifts, yeah. squats. So I mean, if if you actually started doing squats and deadlifts without a belt and then yeah. progressed to a certain level of strength, you're naturally going to engage your core more, but if you're using a belt right out of the gate, you know, you're never you're never learning how to keep your center tight. Yeah, I have two two good points about it. The first one is a funny story. You know, the best gym I ever trained at personally was in the basement of a church. It was kind of funny. It was a, like a, a community project for poor kids and elderly people. Huh. But, but, but the guy they gave the contract to was a friend of mine. He was a member of national team Olympic weightlifting and his son was a strongman competitor. So all his equipment was like half Nautilus and Atlantis and all that stuff. But they had a room like with strongman equipment, Olympic platform, bumper plates. And that was like 15 years ago. And the funny thing is that only two guys worked at the gym. My friend was an Olympic weightlifter. And uh, this old guy, uh, he was like a, a, I think he used to be a boxing coach or something, but never lifted a weight in his life. Now, the, the, the clientele of the gym was only powerlifters and strength athletes and elderly people because it was in like a, a, a neighborhood for neighborly uh, for elderly people and that was the, the goal of the project was to keep them active so my friend uh, trained all the strongmen competitors and stuff like that and the boxing guy trained all the other clients the elderly folks but he, he didn't know anything about training so what did he do he looked at what my <laughs> friend was doing and did the exact same thing with the elder. so you can walk in the gym and actually saw that like a 75-year-old lady was at the most 100 pounds. <laughs> she was doing a max deadlift with a powerlifting deadlift chains on the bar. Oh, and he was hilarious. yelling at her. It was pretty funny. <laughs> but I, I really like the point about people who are starting using a belt before learning how to use their abdominals. Because I, yeah, I, you have 135 on the bar and you have a belt. And you're, you're, <laughs> talking, you're, you're chalking up your hands. Pounds. Well, it, it works on your V taper, bro. <laughs> But I, I gave a conference uh, last weekend, and I talked about belts. I mean, belts, when they are properly used with people who have good mind-muscle connection with their abdominals, it actually increases the activity of the abdominal muscle because you're using the belt and you're pushing again against it with your abdominals. But if you're using a belt before you learn to use your core, then it becomes a crutch. Then it's a problem. So I don't think belts by themselves are bad. If you're good at using your core, they can be a benefit. I think but I think the mistake people make, like for the, in the context of the deadlift, is they wear the belt to protect their back, right? That's their mindset. Yeah. But in reality, good technique is what protects your back. Oh, exactly. You're, you're, you're going in, yeah, you're going in, going, okay, this is bad for my back, so let me put this and belt on. For some people, they use to hold their right, gut too. Like, <laughs> Don't leave that out. Secure. It's like protect my back and hold my gut in. You know, so, so that's another. Thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's just it really it's it's only psychological. It, yeah, it right, makes right. you feel more secure. Yes. That's right. 
because people feel, I mean, they're lifting really heavy and they hit that sticking point. They're like, oh, thank God I have this belt on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're not using a belt and you know how to engage your core, you know how to engage it just right at that and, sticking point. To and psychologically. Things. Yeah, anyway, the sticking point, at the sticking point, you should be able to maintain perfect right. form. Right, right. And that's why I really like paused lifting. Like you do a deadlift and you pause right before or right after the sticking point. So you're really strengthening that yeah. posture. But what if your sticking point is right off the floor, right? That's where most people have a hard time. I, I mean, I find for me, if I can get the bar to even just below knee, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if I get stuck there, I'm going to finish it. But sometimes if it just doesn't come off, the, the, like inches, the first couple yes. inches are critical. If it doesn't come off, if those first couple, if I put everything I have into it and the bar barely moves, <laughs> you know, it's it's not going to go anywhere. Well, in my opinion, the, the best exercise for that are floating deadlifts. Huh. Uh, floating deadlifts are deadlift with a pause at the bottom, right? But without the weight touching the floor. And you're actually standing on mats like you're doing a deficit deadlift. But it's not to increase the range of motion. It's so that you can have the full range of motion without the plates touching the floor. Huh. So on every rep, you pause for three seconds. Wow. And then you do the concentric rep. So that strengthens isometrically that position. So that way, when, you, when you're trying to break the barbell off the floor then you, you have a lot of strength to maintain that posture and, and transfer max, maximum of your strength to the barbell. Right. Is there anything you do? Let's say you're gonna, let's say I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow and do a deadlift max. Are there, are there any activation exercises you have people do to just prime the nervous system, get it ready for that effort? Well, the, the one movement, well, I, personally, I rarely have people max out on deadlifts. Okay. I mean, it's, it's the one lift I feel that you don't need to train that heavy. I see. It, it, it's all about making sure that you have perfect lifting technique at all time. But let's say that you really want to lift heavy. One thing I really like is because let's look at what activation is like activation when it comes to the big strength lift. It's turning on exciting the nervous system. Right. But you want to do that with as little fatigue as possible because fatigue will decrease performance. So one thing I really like, it's, it's a method of um, using isometrics. So it's either overcoming isometrics, so you're pulling against pins, right? right. Uh, so you're sitting up in a power rack, you put the safety pins on, and then you try to lift the power rack. Pulling against pins. Right. Uh, what I like to do is do that uh, overcoming isometrics uh, at the beginning of the movement, uh, just to activate that that strong start while maintaining perfect position. Mm. Or you can also use functional isometrics. Functional isometrics. You set the bar on the safety pins, and you load the weight, the barbell, with a weight that exceeds your maximum. And then you just lift it about one inch off of the pins and you hold for six seconds. Obviously, you need to do that movement in a strong position. So it would probably be like just below or just above the knees, not from the start. In both cases, the, the isometric action should be between three and six seconds uh, because you don't want to create any fatigue. It's just about turning on the nervous system as much as possible. Yeah, that's interesting. Also, it seems like it would be a confidence builder, too. Yeah. You're holding on to something much heavier than what you're about to lift. So when you go to what you're going to lift, yeah. you go, okay, this is not as intimidating now. 
No, and, and it's not a new tool. I mean, it was used by the York guys, Bob Hoffman, in, right. in the 60s. And I personally really love functional isometrics because you can actually quantify the progress. If you use that as a training method, I mean, not just a, an activation tool. I mean, it, pulling against spin, that, that's all fine and well, but you can't measure the actual strength you're producing. So you don't right. know if you're progressing or not. But by using functional isometrics, just basically working up to the maximum weight you can hold for six seconds in a position, then you can quantify progress. And that should be used for three weeks uh, at a time. That makes uh, sense because it's hard to know if you're actually doing a maximal effort with traditional isometrics, right? Correct. You're just pushing your hands up against the wall like, okay, I'm going to give it everything I have. But you don't, you don't, are you really giving it everything you have? Because in your I, mind, I you're thinking – I guarantee that if I'm putting a gun to your head, you would push harder. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean if the house is about to collapse, it's, 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 it's the whole owner this is on you to keep that roof up. Yeah, you're going to put more effort into it than like, oh, hey, let me just practice some isometrics right now. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and actually, it's it's yeah, it's it's a method that it forces you to be honest with yourself. Sadly, most people aren't, and and it's all about that effort. I mean, I'd rather have somebody produce maximum effort for two seconds right. than go for six seconds at ninety percent. I mean. For overcoming isometrics, like pulling against spins or pushing against spins, it has been shown that if you are a non-beginner, giving anything less than 100% effort will not carry over to strength gains. Because what we want is to force the body to recruit more muscle fibers. Uh, you can recruit up to 10% more muscle fibers by doing that. But if you're not producing maximum effort, you're just recruiting the same muscle fibers you would uh, with 80 to 90% per, uh, of your maximum on the on the full lift. Yeah. And what are what are some of the posterior chain exercises you like to improve deadlift performance? Well, my, my personal favorite for myself that I, I really like, uh, I, I like to do uh, good mornings with a, uh, with a safety squat bar uh, and, and starting from pins. Uh, for some reason, when I start from uh, like a from pins, uh, like a dead start movement, first of all, it translates more to the deadlift because it's more specific. Like in, a, in a deadlift, uh, you don't have uh, the benefit of starting with a, a, a eccentric action prior to the lifting. I mean, right. in my opinion, right. in my opinion, a properly done deadlift, even if you're doing reps in a set, it should always be done from a dead start. I feel that one of the reasons why people can't gain strength on their deadlift is that they are doing, let's say they're doing sets of three or five reps. The first rep is from a dead start, but the other reps yeah. are just either just bouncing. Go. Yeah, even if you don't bounce, if you just like go right. to the floor and just go back and up, immediately return. I like to park yeah, exactly. it and reset every single Correct. rep. That's the way that, I've that's always exactly done. Exactly how the deadlift should be trained. That's yeah. exactly how the deadlift should be trained. So I want every rep to feel like a maximum rep, rather than okay, the first one momentum. and now I have momentum, so I'm just going to stay in motion. Yeah, I mean, and you, you'll notice that you know, a lot of people when they train the deadlift, the first rep is super hard. Then they <laughs> right. hang out three reps like it's nothing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's so true. Uh, every, when you train a strength lift, when you train a strength lift, uh, a big compound movement, and you want to improve performance, what you want is every repetition should be done in the same condition as when you're testing the lift. Right. So in a squat. It is preceded by decentric. So it's fine to go fast between reps and whatever. And bench press, same thing. The overhead press should be done from a dead start on every rep. 
the deadlift should be done on a dead start, snatches, cleans also. So it's all about training under the same condition that the max effort will be done. Otherwise, there is very little transfer in strength. Right. So that's why I like that. A good morning. The safety squat bar allows me to go lower without stressing the position. The I bar see. won't roll down. Uh, I personally like to use either bands or chains on that. It, it really mimics the, the same dynamic as a deadlift. So I start with my torso as close to parallel as possible. My lower back is arched and my hips is, are pushed back. If my goal, for example, if, if somebody has weak hamstrings, then I will elevate the front of the foot, the front half of the foot. So let's say, for example, you put uh, some 10 pounds plates on the floor and you just put the front half of your feet on those plates. So that actually shifts more of the tension on the hamstrings. If somebody has weak glutes, then I'll do the same deadlift, mm. uh, but will elevate the heels, not the front of the foot. So less stress will be put on the hamstrings and more on the glutes. So it all depends on which portion of the uh, of the posterior chain you want to work on. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's very very precise advice right there. And these are these are probably people that are listening. If you're just starting off with the deadlift, you don't want to get too distracted by these supplemental lifts but for those of us that have been doing it for a while generally you're going to hit certain plateaus and there's always a precise reason right. why so once you figure that out and then act accordingly you can blast through plateaus again and that's a very good point i think that a lot of people they they, they are I mean, let's be honest people they want to discuss training methods they'd want to discuss <laughs> more, more than more than training train. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a lot easier to talk about this stuff. But not just do that, it. They also want to talk about like what's the perfect sets and reps, what's right, the right, perfect right. assistance exercises. I mean, these are sexy conversations. <laughs> but if we talk about making sure that every repetition is technically perfect, yeah. then you're losing most of the people. Yet, that's the only important thing in my opinion. I mean, right, you can have right. the best sets and rep scheme in the world. I mean, a set and rep scheme it's really just a way to put together many repetitions. So if these repetitions are never done the same way, if there's never repeated from, set, from, from rep to rep, then it doesn't matter. I mean, it's all about having as many perfect repetitions as possible. And I find that when I'm training for strength, uh, the main benefit of varying the sets and reps is just to make sure that most of the repetition are done in a mental state that allows me to have maximum performance. I'll give you an example. We all know about the three to one rep scheme, right? Right. Uh, like three to one waves, you do one set of three reps, then you add some weight, you do two reps, add some weight, do one. If you were successful, you start a second wave using the same pattern, but using a bit more weight and you stop when you can't complete a weight. Well, in my opinion, I mean, it's the reason why waves work. It's not so much about neurological potentiation, although that happens, but it happens with any form of heavy lifting. It's that it puts you in a positive mindset on every set. Let me, let me explain. You do three reps, then you have to add weight. Ah, it's heavier. Yeah, but it's easy. It's only two reps now. So you are in a positive mindset. Then you move to one. Oh, it's super heavy. Yeah, but it's only one rep. Come on, that's easy. Then you complete the wave. You start a new one. Ah, three reps, that's a long time. Yeah, but it's 20 pounds less than you just did. It's going to be easy. So every set, it's easier and easier. Mm. That's why, for example, my favorite all-time sets and rep schemes is uh, five, four, three, two, one. 
like one set of five, one set of four with heavier, one set of two with heavier. Because to me, every set, although it's heavier and more demanding, it feels easier because I'm doing less reps. So I, as the as the sets progress, I'm in a better and better and better mindset. So that's just, in my opinion, one of the reasons why varying the sets and rep schemes is important more to give you in a positive mindset. Uh, more so than just the physiological and neurological effect. Right. Because to be honest, doing work in the 80 to 100% range, if you do the proper number of repetition, uh, it doesn't matter really how you assemble those reps if they are done with technical precision. It's just a matter of keeping you motivated in a positive mindset. I think those are important points because a lot of people do – they, they, they tend to know more about programs, what programs are out there, what options to take advantage of. But when it comes to their actual technique, right. that's usually where the, the flaws are. I mean, yeah. it's, it's rare I see really good deadlift technique or really good squat technique. Oh, yeah. Most people, for take the deadlift, for example, most people will just lift the barbells straight up from the floor. So it's right. all lower back. It's right, all lower right. back. And that, that's one mistake. But yeah, before you, you, you even need to think about using special methods, assistance exercises and stuff like that, you need to master perfect technique. And to me, there's no way around it. You have to focus on perfecting every repetition. And it's all about frequency. If you want to be good at a movement, you need to practice it often. Now, obviously, once you're good at a movement, Let's say a deadlift, for example. You don't need to practice it as often. Right. But while you're learning the motor pattern and you're ingraining it and you're working on a, a coordination, muscle recruitment, you need to train that lift often. That's why I feel that for best result, initially, the deadlift should not be trained heavy. Because if you train a deadlift heavy, you can't train it often. It's the most draining lift. It will put pain on you in places you don't even suspect. Right. So you can't practice it often. So, so to you, me, you, really, you really can't even practice good technique no. either, right? Because you're no. so big, you're so focused on trying to lift something heavy that you're just trying to get the job done. And the thing is that, and that's a good point. The deadlift, it's probably the only movement that. When you begin, when, when you're a beginner and you don't yet have the foundation of technique and stuff like that, and probably lift more using bad techniques. Right. You know, a, a pro lifter, a very high level lifter will lift better with good technique. But when you're a beginner, you can lift with round back and stuff and it will work because you have some strength uh, that will allow you to lift the weight and you're, you're not strong enough yet for your weaknesses to hold you back. Mm -hmm. So people will break form and they can lift more weight. The problem is that, in my opinion, a, a, a true max is the max that is done with perfect technique. Right. That is a training max, obviously. I mean, if you are doing a competition and you need to win, then it's fine to have a technique breakdown. But it's not the same thing. That's more of a competition max, which is normally 10% higher than your training perfect form max. And that's one problem I see with, you know, all these programs using percentages like progression from week to week. And, I, and I've created such programs. The problem, the, pro the problem is that in the programs, it's in the people doing the programs. Right. No, no one's honest with right. the one rep max. That, that's, that's where people go, oh, I tried the Ed Cohen deadlift program. It didn't yeah. work. And then I go, you didn't, it didn't work because you didn't calculate your honest one rep max. I mean, they're, they're, they're missing reps the third week in. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And they, they're accumulating so much stress just to get those reps in. I mean, on these programs should not be hard until the sixth right. week. Right. 
And right. the thing is that, you know, most people, and I, I actually, I'm not proud of that. I've done that myself when I was 18. The first time I did the doctor's <laughs> right, squat program. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. What I did was that I, I had this Excel spreadsheet, right? So I entered my deadlift max, let's say 500. And I looked at the projected max, oh, it's going to be 545. Yeah, but I really want to get 565. <laughs> right. So I worked the program so that at the end it would be 565. Right, right. So I obviously screwed myself up, but most yes. people do that. Or they go with their all-time max that they hit once in a perfect possible situation. 25 20 years, years ago. Never <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's even worse when you're doing the Olympic lifts. Because uh, I think mad. I think it's better to just err on the side of lighter, right? Like if you're like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I, I know I can deadlift 500 pounds, but I barely got. So let's put it at 475. Let's put it at 480. I mean, you're you're, you're still going to get great results. And, and you're going to build confidence. Psychologically, yeah. you're going to really feel yeah. good going in there. So, okay, I can actually push this now. Instead of feeling defeated. I think that's the greatest, the greatest asset, the greatest positive effect of the 531 program yes. by Wendler. Yes. Right, because right. Jim actually built that in the program. You have to start with 10% less than your maximum. Right. So, so that guarantees that for about four or five months, you will always hit the projected weights. So again, like you mentioned, it will build confidence in the program. And I remember I was uh, when I was in St. Louis working at the uh, training center there, uh, the guy, the, uh, the athletic director was Andre Benoit, who's uh, Charles Polican right and man now. Yeah, right. And he asked me, well, Christian, what's the most important thing for a client to progress? Well, that was like, like 12 years ago. I was like, I, I thought I was this big shot trainer, right? Working for T Nation. I already like wrote a book and stuff like that. So I gave him <laughs> the smart ass answer. Well, it's the proper selection of the training methods to create the physiological response you want to create the training effect desired. So he looked at me and said, that's not it at all. You're not even close. So I said, well, it, the proper selection of the exercises to respect the biomechanics of the client to make sure that the progress is properly suited for his body type. Say, Christian, do you even know what you're talking about? <laughs> well, what the heck? What, what is the most important thing? Well, the most important thing is that the person has 100% trust in you and the program. Mm. Because if you trust your trainer or the program, 100%, you will get results. It will put you in a positive mindset. See, most people don't right. trust programs. That's the problem is most people think they know better. So they'll start a program and they're going, oh, man, this is too easy. Let me add an extra 10 pounds. And then week four, they're they're not getting stronger. Nah, they're going, work. yeah, I tried it. Didn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That actually happened to me uh, when I, the first time I tried Westside. You know, when I stopped doing Olympic lifts, I was looking for, as I mentioned earlier, I was looking for something else to compete in. Right. Uh, when the bobsleigh thing didn't pan out, I decided to try powerlifting. So I said, well, Westside was all the rage back then. But obviously, I know better, right? <laughs> so instead of doing one max effort lift in a workout, I did two because I want to progress twice as fast. And I did like <laughs> twice the amount of assistance work. Yeah. And I burned out. So Westside doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because you're stupid. <laughs> I, it's funny because I see more guys yes. having that problem than oh, girls. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Or, girls often it's, it's the opposite. It's that there's yeah. it's like you're, they're they're a lot stronger than they realize, and you yeah, kind of yeah. have to convey that clearly. And that's why CrossFit is so effective with women because oh. it, no, I, I'll give my wife as an example. My wife, when I trained her. 
Now she would use like 10 pounds per side on power cleans. And I, I you, you're good for so much more. Like at least put five more pounds on. Uh, we would fight for like years, but not years, but a lot of time. And she never accepted like lifting any weight. Now she started doing CrossFit like a few years ago. Uh, like after the second week, she walked in. I have power clean 155. I said, what? That's great. Yeah, but the, the heaviest she's went before was like 65. Yeah. yeah. So the, the thing yeah. is that it forces them, it puts them, it changes their mindset that they, they want to perform. So but have, I think it's important for women. Yeah, I was going to say is that camaraderie. One, yeah. one thing CrossFit's yeah. done. Well, one thing CrossFit's done is you have a lot of really feminine looking women yeah. who have strong body. They look strong and powerful, but they're still feminine. Right. And I think that's inspiring to other women because as, as a guy telling a woman what to do, she's looking at you and going, I don't want to look like you. And they, exactly. they, they can't get that image out of their head, even though that's not what's going to happen. But when they see other women who are strong, powerful, feminine, lifting heavy weights, like, oh, and, cool. I and they have like similar that. backgrounds exactly. as they do. So they're, they're the mom with three kids at home as well. And they work the 40, 50, 60 hours during the week. So they're not these women who are just like, oh, I'm an athlete and this is what I do. You know, and that's what they're used to right, saying. Right. You know? exactly. And they're like, I'm not an athlete. I'm a mom, you know, and I got a family. So I don't have time for all that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, and just that, that's a good point. And that will bring another subject. I mean, aging, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people say, well, I'm getting too old and I'm, I'm, they think that when they get older, then they lose strength automatically. They lose power, speed. They can't train as hard. We, in reality, what's happening is that because of their lifestyle change, mm-hmm. right. they convince themselves subconsciously that they can't train as hard right. anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've trained people who hit personal best on a deadlift at, at 63. I've trained with a guy when I was training at the National Center uh, in Olympic weightlifting many years ago. We had two masters lifter there. One was 67 years old at uh, 170 pounds. uh, He clean and jerk 127 kilos. So that's like 280. Wow. And he snatched 210. He behind the neck push press 315 for three reps. And he was 170 pounds, 60, 67 years old. Wow. He actually started training. He started training at 50. So wow. it's not like he was a guy who was super strong in his youth and just maintained some of that strength. He actually started training at 50 and hit weights that most people in their 20s would, would love to hit. Yeah. And his yeah. training partner was 69. Uh, he was. <laughs> it's funny. I just saw an article. He's 81 now and he's still competing. Wow. And uh, at, at 69, he would train twice a day with us, like in the morning and afternoon. But between both sessions, he would go sprinting outside. The guy at 69 had a better body than most kids you see nowadays. And he was still power cleaning 225 for sets of five, snatching 200, so, so wow. squatting 400 at 170 pounds also. Yeah. So I, I, I yeah. love hearing stories like that, man. It's inspiring. I think a lot of people like to use age as an excuse. They, they can't wait to get old. So then they can say, hey, you know what? I, I wanted to be strong and powerful. I wanted to be strong and powerful, but I'm 50 now. So, I mean, this, that's just not practical anymore. And now they have an excuse you know, not to good. even try. But you know, one thing that's important, I really believe, you know, the, the best anti-aging training you could do is high-speed work. It's mm. sprinting, very short sprint, explosive work. It's yeah. jumping, it's throwing, and it's the Olympic lift. Because explosiveness and speed are the first thing that goes when you get older. That's right. So yeah, you, there was a study about walking speed that's, yeah. that confirms what you're talking about. Is as you get older, you're walking. For a lot of people, their walking speed is indicative of their age. And when they get really slow, they're in a rapidly aging state. Did the study also study driving speed? 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know if it did, but it definitely correlates there. That's for yeah, sure. Probably. Oh, yeah, so, so I think uh, doing, staying explosive, it's the best way to prevent uh, to prevent aging at the cellular level, at the neurological level. Because really, think about it. Uh, explosive work activates the nervous system, increases neuro, neurotransmitter use and production. Right. So all these things will keep your brain young. It's not just about, you know, we all always say that if you want to keep your brain young, you have to exercise it. So people think about doing crossword puzzles and stuff <laughs> right. like that, but yeah, right. it's also about doing high intensity work, explosive work. That's the best thing you can do for your yeah. brain. Like that was actually shown in a recent study to be more important. Like the best thing you can do for brain health is not necessarily brain-related activities like what you mentioned, crossword puzzles, but intense exercise. Yeah, it's probably one of the reasons yeah, why exactly. so many of the older population are drawn to like kettlebells and kettlebell sport because they're doing that explosive mm -hmm. work. And it's a, when they look at that kettlebell, it's a little less intimidating than looking at a barbell and thinking about doing Olympic lifting. Correct. But then what, it ends, up, what ends up happening once they started really accelerating and being successful with kettlebells and kettlebell sport, then they started thinking about the possibilities like, well, maybe I should try a power clean, you know, and they look out, look for a coach to help right. them with that. And they start doing that. Next thing you know, they've moved on to doing that now, doing Olympic lifting and competing as a master. But they were the yeah. guy that was in kettlebell sport. And then just all these other doors start to open up and they're like 60, 70, 80 years old. And so and inspiring people, yeah. you know, so. But, but the cool thing with kettlebells also with these people and also with women is the fixed yes. weight. I mean, it, since the, 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 I mean, not, not the, like the modern kettlebells that they have now built for five pounds increment, yes. but the real kettlebells. I mean, you are forced, quote unquote, to stay with the same bell for a long time. So it forces you to work more on technique and speed and it's less mm -hmm. intimidating. Because you don't, I think I, I like progression as much as the next guy. But I think that many people screw up their problem by having the wrong mindset of they are forced to lift more weight every workout. They are forced to do more rep every workout. Right. To me, that puts you in the wrong mindset. The body doesn't work like that. The body works in spurts. I mean, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you might lift the same weight for a month and a half, then you gain 10% 10, 10 right. in, in right. one week. That's right. the way the body works. So if you work on uh, always trying to lift heavier, you're always working uh, like on the depth, you're always exceeding your neurological capacity. So you will never see those big yeah, gains. Thing. Whereas if, if you work on technique acceleration, these games will, will gain, these games will, uh, gains will come because you're perfect tech, you're perfecting technique, coordination and muscle. Exactly. Recruitment. And one thing about that, the kettlebells kind of reinforce what you were saying earlier about, you know, working on the technique and mastering it before you even think about moving on to something else. And the beautiful thing about a lot of kettlebells is like, when it's time to increase the weight, the next weight up is either now they got these in between bells, these transition bells, which are probably about four or five pounds mm -hmm. more. But before that, you had to yeah. increase nine more pounds, you know, per kettlebell, which made you really want to sit back. Whatever, whatever kettlebell you were working with, you wanted to make sure you got strong with that one before you even thought about moving to the next one, because that nine pounds yeah. makes a difference when on an off centered weight, especially if you use the two. And, and, and that's recent. When I started kettlebell training, it was yeah. 18 pounds. I, mean, you were, I was yeah, doing double 70s, yeah, double. and the next step up was double yeah. 88s. So, and that yeah, was a huge like jump. So <laughs> if you didn't have, if you didn't master double 70s, forget about if you could, if someone who could press double 70s, let's like, say five times. They're not going to bother press double eight right. once, so you were forced to stick with yeah. that for yeah. reps. You had to get you had to get at least ten reps with two seventies before you could even think about one or two reps. Exactly. I was speaking from a I was yeah, speaking from hard. one kettlebell perspective. So yeah, I was about to say with two, yeah, you got that eighteen pound increase, and you can just forget about it, buddy. It's not going to happen. 
Yeah, no, but, but when double set, it's, it's 18 per bell. Oh, so yeah, you're going up yeah. 36 pounds. So when I, when I, when I was doing double kettlebell work and I wanted to go from double seventies to double eighty yeah. eights, I mean, it's a, it's a 36 right. pound increase. So, like you said, if you didn't if you didn't have real mastery of those seventies, forget it. You're, you're going to no, fail. They're painted miserably. red for a reason. It's a stop, stop. Get your stuff together, <laughs> man, before you go further. <laughs> but I was mentioning, uh, Dan John, you you wrote an article about that using the same concept but with barbells. Mm. Always uh, either only working with twenty five and forty five. So if you can't go from 135 to 185, you stick with 135. If you can't go to 225, you stick with 185. That's, yeah. 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 I think, I think oh, there's yeah. a lot to be said about that. I think, I think most, most lifters. Milking a weight. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to be said about just mastering something before you move on to the next. Yes. It, it requires a much more patient approach, but in the long run, you're going to be way further ahead because you're going to avoid injuries. You're going to avoid burning out. Mm-hmm. You're gonna mat. You're gonna reinforce. Yeah, you'll be more invested in that in that exercise itself because you're gonna really yeah. start picking it apart and really trying to find out what do I need to tweak these little minute things. You're gonna be very more, very much more invested in it at that point. People need to develop a pride of perfecting yes. technique, like right. the pride of doing a perfect movement, perfect muscle control. Uh, I, I always uh, say when I, when someone sees me lifting something, I want them to think, "Man, exactly. he makes it look easy." Yes. That's what I want them to think. So when I'm deadlifting, I don't have this scowl <laughs> on my face. Even if even if it's a max lift, when I'm deadlifting, my, my face is not showing pure pain the way someone's yeah. deadlifting. With that's a good pain. point. There's one thing I, I emphasize. I actually think that you know making faces tensing up increases the neurological yes. stress so much, so much. No doubt. A relaxed face, uh, being relaxed in the right places while tense in the other places, it tremendously decreases the stress. Of, uh, I mean, something can be said about using the muscles that you actually need to utilize during an exercise. Because recruit, yeah. when you're straining your <laughs> right. face, you're recruiting more muscles that you know you don't necessarily need that when you're lifting. And, that's, and guess what? Those <laughs> muscles require more energy, so they're taking away the energy you need for the actual muscles that need to do the lift. So that's another way. I mean, just the, just the message that he's <laughs> like, the brain too. It's like, oh wow, this, this is sucks. really hard. Put it down. Put right. it down. Yeah. <laughs> Now, that was some of the best advice I got actually from Coach John Davies back in the day. I was doing some kettlebell pressing, and he, was, he, he saw me doing it. And he goes, "Look, man, your face is way too intense, and mm-hmm. you know you're grinding your teeth yeah. and all that. So you want to be calm when you're doing this kind of stuff." Well, he and comes from a yes, track background, and the right. first thing they learn in track is to keep yeah. your face relaxed. Yeah. Right. That's why. Right. That's why I learned it from sprinting and, and doing hurdles. Just like relax your face, relax your hands. Don't sit there and run with a fist like you're running to go punch somebody in the face and things like that. And just flow, man. Just pretend like you're running on the cloud. Well, I mean, just look at most. Just look at most MMA fighters, right? When they're walking oh, out yeah. to the cage. How many of them are just got like an angry face on the whole time? Most of the time, they're calm. Sometimes they're smiling. Exactly. You know, sometimes they're joking around. <laughs> But they they tend to be and fluid they, and just light on their feet. I guess something can be said to come out to walk out to Madonna next time, huh? <laughs> when somebody's like that fighting for <laughs> If that can't keep you relaxed. That might actually be quite intimidating though. I mean if that guy walks into Madonna, then he's probably dangerous. <laughs> yeah, he has you know, to be. This guy yeah. knows something I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But there was a guy who walked into yeah. Madonna recently, and he yeah. lost. So I don't think it helped. Hey, but look, <laughs> Katy Perry helped you know, he, Misha Tate finally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Misha Tate walked into Katy Perry and a third time's the charm, man. <laughs> now, Christian, do you find that there are exercises that are affected by body weight more than others? And, and what I mean by that is if, oh, yeah. if I, let's say I lose 5 or 10 pounds, it doesn't really affect my deadlift that much. But yep. squat, definitely an overhead press is ridiculous. Yeah, I, I had a, a stomach flu recently, so I lost I lost five pounds that I didn't want to lose. So then I started pressing again, and I was like, whoa, what happened? This feels a lot heavier than it did last week. 
I noticed the exact same thing. Oddly enough, for me, the two lifts that are the more most affected by body weight are the bench press and overhead press by far. Yeah. And that's counterintuitive because squat, you kind of get it because uh, being bigger gives you better leverages. Uh, It puts more muscle to hold uh, the body tensed. uh, Right, right. But uh, on, on overhead press and bench press, you think, well, it's, it's mostly upper body. So even if you lose some weight, lose, you know, even if it's just fat, you, you don't lose any, any leverage or anything. But uh, it's those movements that, in my opinion, are the most affected. I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I was bench pressing on Tuesday and Saturday. On Tuesday, I hit 425. Uh, then on Friday, uh, I took a hot tub with my wife for about an hour and a half. We didn't do anything foolish, didn't get drunk, didn't fool around. Didn't have any fun <laughs> in there. <laughs> just, just to relax. Yeah. I was really tired afterwards, so I just went straight to bed. Yeah. They tried to rehydrate. Uh-huh. And the next morning, even though I felt good, felt energetic, I missed 365. I mean, we're talking about 80 pounds less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it really affects. And, and I don't noticed a, a strong correlation with my body weight and bench press performance. The deadlift actually... I've noticed that gaining weight doesn't really affect performance, and at one point it can actually decrease performance. I mean, in your case, it won't matter because you're you're lean. But people who are like kind of husky, if you get too fat, what can happen is that first of all your your yes. stomach gets in the way, or even if your thighs, <laughs> even if your thighs are, are are like thicker, your quads are thicker, the bar is a bit more forward, right? So it right. changes leverage, but also your hands get fatter. Huh. People don't realize it, but yeah. you know, people like to do a lot of like forearm work to get their grip stronger. That's probably one of the worst thing you can do. Uh, you need to do finger work uh, right. because finger work, finger strength is all about the nervous system. You don't have that much muscle mass in your fingers. So if you're doing lots of forearm work to improve your grip, you're probably making it worse by making everything a bit thicker. Mm. And when you're gaining fat in your hands, obviously it's harder to hold a barbell, especially if you have small hands. But yeah, yeah the deadlift is not really affected by body weight. Obviously, somebody, someone who's like 125 won't deadlift 800. Right, but right. Like if some person gain or add weight, it should not affect his deadlift much. But pressing, yeah. pressing is a, it's a big thing. Squat, what, what I found with squat actually that goes first when I, when I lose weight, it's not so much the strength of the legs. It's that the bar yeah. feels heavier on my shoulder. Right, shape. right, absolutely. It's like what, when you, for some reason, maybe it's because uh, leverage, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm less upper yeah. body mass to hold everything together, but the bar feels heavier. It's like I cannot get a stance or in as good position. And right. that's funny because I, in isolation exercise, I could be stronger, but if I'm lighter, the bar will still feel heavier. And that's also true on the bench press. I could, my triceps, delts, and pecs could be stronger, but if I lost weight because I'm on a diet, the bench press will be will be uh, weaker. Yeah, seems like that's why some powerlifters do high sodium meals before yeah. competitions yeah. or even totally. intense workouts, just so they hold way more water weight. Well, I, I remember well, a few years ago. Uh, in a, a little town close to where I lived, like a farmer town, there was a, this gym of hardcore powerlifters that were actually pretty strong. And their favorite supplement, you know, it wasn't creatine, it wasn't uh, protein, it was sea salt. Yeah. yeah. These guys just like made shakes of like spoons of sea salt <laughs> just to take water. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'd like the, the, only, the only problem with that is you might have yeah, some gut man. issues right before that workout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, what, what's your take on like pre-workout supplementation? Do you like to use high-dose caffeine or is there anything okay. in particular? I believe, and I really like what you mentioned earlier. Personally, I don't like stimulants. Right, right. I mean, the hardcore stimulants for many reasons. First of all, on the short term, uh, it really – it can be a problem for uh, for the heart, high blood pressure, stuff oh, like no that. Yeah. I'm really sensitive to that. I have to monitor my blood pressure every day because of kidney issues I had in the past. Huh. Okay. Uh, so it really affects everything. And, and I noticed personally that the higher a blood pressure goes during training, the harder the, it, it's the harder it is to recover from your session. Yeah. So anything that will raise blood pressure will drastically increase the recovery time. That's yeah. the first thing. The second thing is that you know, this, those stimulants basically work by forcing your adrenal glands to produce more adrenaline. Uh, so they give you, as you mentioned, false energy. But the problem with that, there are two problems. On the short term, it give, can give you the illusion that you're in good shape. So right. if you are excessive in your workouts and you're, you, for example, if you're always constantly tired before a session, it tells me that you should reevaluate re your programming, right? But if you're always taking your workouts, it will mask the fatigue, so you won't be objective with how hard your workouts are. Mm, so you could right. be accumulating mistakes that you can correct. Yeah. But on the longer term, what happens is that if you're always asking your adrenal glands to produce over time, like over work, eventually they will be burned out and they won't respond even to natural stimulation. So your body right. won't be able to produce adrenaline anymore. So what hormone will the body produce to compensate? It will compensate by producing cortisol. Right. Because cortisol is also called a low-grade adrenaline because it does many of the same things like mobilizing energy resources to fuel a workout. So every time, if your adrenal glands are burned out, every time you would normally require adrenaline, you will compensate by producing cortisol. Yeah. Obviously, a constantly elevated cortisol level will will make it hard to replenish muscle glycogen. It will make your muscles more resistant to insulin. Uh, it will keep your blood sugar constantly elevated. Could cause eventually diabetes, insulin resistance, yeah. and retention, all that stuff. But also, you, most people don't don't know that you know, cortisol is fabricated uh, from a normal a hormone called pregnenolone. And pregnenolone is also the mother hormone of testosterone. So if you're always overproducing cortisol because you can't produce adrenaline, what happens is that now you don't have the raw material to produce testosterone. Right. So your testosterone level goes down. So that's why athletes who are overtrained have a drastic loss in libido, no sex drive, and oftentimes uh, erectile dysfunction. Oh, so yeah. that's why I say that uh, a very good marker of overtraining is loss of morning wood. Yeah. That's yeah. not super scientific, but it, it, it actually it tells you a good idea. No, that's a good point. Otherwise, you're suffering from the the, 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 cord the, the testosterone steal. Like as you said, the pregnenolone pathway is going completely to cortisol. Testosterone right. and DHA are depleted. Sex right. drive is gone. Yeah. So, I mean, you just – in addition to no morning wood, you're just, you just don't have any sex drive. Your energy is low. Your zeal for life is low, and you're in a totally depleted state. It's interesting what you said about athletes. 
when they test UFC fighters who are natural during fight camp, their testosterone levels are always really low. Mm. Like Chris Weidman's only 28, and they tested him during the halfway point against Vitor Belfort a while back, and mm-hmm. his total T was 300. Yeah. And that's to be expected because their camps are grueling. Mm-hmm. But Vitor Belfort's level was 1,200. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a wow. guy who was a – he's a previous TRT abuser. Allegedly, he was natural now. So how could a guy – who was on TRT because he had low levels, all of a sudden have 1,200 naturally in the middle of a fight camp. Which would be higher than TRT levels. Yeah, how many guys naturally are at 1,200, period, even when everything is perfect? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, but, but that, that's another story. But uh, for example, personally, personally, uh, I, I think that you know, artificial steroids, in my opinion, since they are foreign to the body, they should be tested and uh, prohibited. But there is a case that could be made for allowing people to have normal levels of the base hormones uh, so that it would actually be a a level playing field. I mean, uh, I read a book a while ago about a a Tour de France uh, doctor who actually prescribed testosterone gels to uh, his cyclist, and what he said was, I mean, the cyclist comes to me after a, a race. I test him for testosterone, and my diagnostic is you need three weeks off, otherwise you will have health issues. Mm. The guy obviously says, well, I can't do that because I have 14 more stages to go to, so 14 more days. Right. So then the, the, the only medical thing I can do to keep him healthy is make sure that his testosterone levels are in the normal range. So there, there, would be, um, there could be a case for uh, an argument for that, just making sure that this athlete stay healthy. Obviously, somebody who trains... Uh, like five hours a week won't have that issue unless he's doing something stupid. Right, but but right. for uh, high-level athletes, making sure that they stay healthy might be a uh, cause for concern. Yeah, I guess the only counter to that would be some athletes who are going, well, I, even if I can take it, I don't want to. Yeah, I want right. to compete naturally. So now yeah. you have people that are going, okay, I'm going to take advantage of that loophole since I can. Yeah. But then there's going to be people going, well, now I feel like I have to, even though I don't want mm-hmm. to, to keep That's up true. with those people. But then again, you will only have clean Olympics or clean sport when you can test and do test everybody with 100% accuracy. Right, right, right. And don't have any indetectable substances and stuff like that. So it, I think I think it's getting better, though. If you just look at the last year's world, cha- this year's world championship in weightlifting, I mean, seven Russian lifters were tested positive. Hmm. I think I think over 20 lifters did test positive. So they are getting better and better. Uh, but then again, weightlifting is a poor sport, so maybe they just don't have access to what the the richer athletes have access to. Right, right. And then yeah, I think I think it's a it's a tough it's a tough arena because as the yes. testing as the testing gets better, it's the the ability to beat tests also mm-hmm. gets better. Yeah, and it's it becomes more and more money dependent. Yeah, right. Like in the UFC, they're looking at the testosterone, the epitestosterone ratio. So then people start realizing, okay, let me take testosterone and epitestosterone to keep that ratio. (laughs) So that even if my T levels are sky high, they're looking at the ratio and that's normal, then then I'm going to get a pass. Yeah. 
I don't. It, it, it's a it's a cat and mouse game. Yeah, that's the thing. The, the people who can hire the best specialist will have an advantage over uh, those who can't afford it. So that's why you see these athletes getting popped for substances that they have no business taking. I mean, substances that that will test positive for like eighteen months. Uh, they take that because they just don't have any other options if they want to compete with the guys who have access to the better specialists. Right. Yeah. Like, you have, for example, uh, I won't name any names, but you have weightlifters who pulled out of the 2012 London Olympics uh, because they, their teams do in-house drug testing and throughout the year. So normally they know when their athlete will test clean. So if they test them like prior to the Olympics and they say you can't pass a test, so they just fake an injury. So <laughs> yeah. That's a fairly common thing. So they would rather <laughs> lose a medal than lose uh, than test positive yeah. for an athlete. It's like, oh, you're testing tomorrow? Yeah, I just twisted my ankles. So I'm not right. going to bother competing. Or, 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 <laughs> injured or injured in nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What with with you find that most people. It's not getting them to train more intensely that's difficult. It's getting them to understand the importance of restoration yeah. to, as a key as a key element to getting stronger. Like I find that I mean I get massages once a week, a really good sports massages once a week. I do I go I go to a spa and hang out at the steam room, hot tub. You know I really take charge of restoration, and I find that even it, as I get into my 40s, I'm getting stronger than I was in my 20s. The only mm-hmm. difference now is that I just have to make sure I get the restoration in. But but I don't I don't think. A large percentage of that is necessarily age-related. It's the fact that I'm way stronger now than I was 20 years ago as well. So that's obviously more taxing on the body, yes. and therefore yeah. I need to make sure the restoration is there. Yeah, people think that, well, you're stronger, but you have more muscle, so the ratio is the same. In reality, you have the same skeleton you you had before. <laughs> right. The tendons are a bit more permissive, but structurally they are very similar. You have the same hormonal system you had. You have the same nervous system. It, it's more efficient, but you didn't grow a bigger brain uh, <laughs> while you were training. <laughs> so, so essentially, except for your muscle, everything else is the same. So as the stronger you get, the harder it is to recover from your training. And I think that people now now are becoming more aware of the importance of the nervous system in training. Right. But the thing is that I think the system that is probably more important is the immune system. Yeah. Mm. And people mm. really underestimate it because it's not sexy. I mean, right, right. The system, you know, people, everybody can relate. In every system, if you feel amped up, you perform better. If you feel woozy or dizzy or neurologically not focused, then you can't perform. People get right, that. Right. But people don't understand that when it comes to building muscle. I mean, obviously, not everybody has the goal of getting bigger, but building muscle is also repairing the muscle you injured while training. Right. Uh, or the micro trauma, not injuries. Uh, but it's the immune system that is the first respondent uh, in the re- recovery and repair pro- process. You know what happens is that when you create micro trauma to the muscle fibers, then you have the macrophage who, who migrate toward that that area, and it, and it brings the cytokines, 
And then all that stuff, like they clear the injury because when you injure the muscle fibers, you, you just, you don't just rebuild over it. You have to clear it so you can reconstruct it stronger. So the macrophage and cytokines are, are used to do that. Then mm. it will activate the, uh, the satellite, satellite cells that are around those muscle fibers. And these satellite cells will be used to construct a new portion of the muscle fibers instead of the injured muscle fibers. And all these things, all these things are driven by the immune system. So if your immune system is compromised, you simply will not build muscle as fast. You right. simply won't repair the muscle as fast. So just and then, I mean, and then if you're sick all the time, you're obviously not going to perform exactly. at a high level. Afraid, you're not going to train yeah. as often. You're exactly. You're going to miss a lot of workouts. You're, you're sick in bed. You're not eating as much as yeah. you should. Yeah, and that, I think that's one, only one of the issues with the if it fits your macros diet, <laughs> right? Because, now, it, it might make sense from a calories balance standpoint. Yeah. The thing is that bad nutrients, bad food choices can compromise the immune system by causing whole body inflammation. Right. And if the immune system is compromised, then simply put, you won't be able to build muscle as fast. It's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I think I think it's a good rule of thumb to focus on highly nutritious food yes. and not worry about the macro so much. Somehow people think, okay, as long as I'm in these percentages, exactly. I can eat whatever I want. And the reality is let's focus on getting the highest nutrition possible yes. in my body. Let's not worry about the optimal ratios or what you think is the optimal ratios of everything. In reality, studies have shown that you don't even need that much protein to build right. muscle. Right, I mean, right. I've used super high protein intakes myself, up yeah. to 450 grams. I didn't build more muscle then than when I have 150. Really. <laughs> right, right. And I think that there's probably nothing worse from a nutrition standpoint for, mu for building muscle than always having the same eye-level protein intake because you desensitize your body to that. Right, absolutely. It's not just about protein are not just building blocks. Like a sudden spike in amino acids have protein synthesis stimulating effect, right? So when you have a sudden increase in amino acids in your blood, you trigger protein synthesis, building muscle. The thing is that for that to work, the spike has to be significantly higher than your baseline. If you're constantly eating large amount of protein every two hours, since protein is digested pretty fast, especially when you have solid food, uh, pretty yeah. slow, slow, pretty slow, you have basically a constantly elevated protein level, and there's nothing worse for protein synthesis. It works if you are bodybuilders using three grams of gear because you already have our uh, stimulating protein synthesis 24 hours 7 artificially. Yeah. But natural, you have to do everything possible to naturally trigger the protein synthesis. And having a constantly elevated protein level is probably one of the worst thing you can do because you become desensitized. That's why I believe in low protein days. I mean, days yeah. where you mm. make an effort to actually consume as little protein as possible. Then you follow it with a higher protein day and that actually has a very, very, very strong anabolic yeah, it's like, effect. Yeah, it's almost cycling. like protein yeah, fasting. Protein it's, like protein, it's like protein fast. It's almost like protein yeah. fasting, right? That, that's like, exactly it. Yes, you do a fast, then you're going to be more sensitive to food right after exactly. a 24 Wouldn't it make more fast. sense to do that the like, nope. day before a hard training session, Kristen, instead of the day of? Uh, actually, uh, I, I wouldn't... <laughs> 
that's a tricky question because uh, we have to reflect when is a high protein intake the most important. Is it the day you're doing tons of training, let's say a twice a day uh, like sessions, or is it when you're recovering from training? Uh, in my opinion, uh, it's probably best uh, the days the day after. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. That makes the most sense. That's when you're repairing, right? right. The day after, exactly. The, the, I mean, the day of <laughs> protein synthesis will be elevated for 24 hours or more. Uh, so, so it may. You, you probably want some protein in you around the workout, even in, on a low-protein day, uh, while making the rest of the day as low as possible. And the day after, then you want to have a very high level of protein intake. Yeah, that what you say about good. protein makes a lot of sense. I remember I used to talk to Franco Colombo when I lived in L.A., get, get chiropractic adjustments from him. Mm-hmm. And he said that even when he and Arnold were in an intense training phase, they would do one gram per kilo plus yeah. 30 grams above that. And then people go, well, they were taking anabolics. And I was like, well, that would be reason to take yeah. more protein, not exactly. less. But even exactly. then, under those circumstances, they were still doing what by today would be considered really low levels yeah. of protein. I noticed by, I mean, and, and I was a very high protein guy. And, and what I notice, even today when I do phases where I increase my protein intake to significant levels, uh, I always look more bloated and <laughs> right. water retention. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Always. I mean, when you it's like when you lower carbs too much, you kind of have depleted that look. Just flat, look flat. Deplete, exactly, it's a pleated look. Yeah. When you have when you have the right amount of carbs in your diet, you have that filled out look. You know, your arms yeah. look pumped up, the veins are sticking out, your shoulders are popping. Yeah, it's funny because I was um, recently my uh, my I have a like a, a team of guys who organize my conferences and stuff like that. And out of the blue, we the guy called me up. I said, "Well, we need to do a photo shoot uh, because we need to come up with flyers and stuff like that." And I said, "Well, I'm I'm not exactly in like photo shoot condition. I'm in a decent <laughs> shape, but not not like bodybuilding shape or anything." Right, right. So I said, "Well, I, I can I, I'll do what I can to be in really good shape. So I'm a, how long do I have?" He said, "You have two weeks." I said, "Well, okay, that's good." And that's very good. So uh, <laughs> I did what I always end up doing, which is very stupid, is that I, I'll go super low carbs and increase my volume. So I'll be first to I'll be forced to burn more fat for fuel. What happened is that three days in or four days into that, I called him up. I said, man, I canceled the shoot. I'm looking like <laughs> total crap because what happened is that. You're so flat that yeah. you look like 10, sp- 10 pounds of muscle lighter, right. and the muscles are not pushing against the skin. Yeah. So I told him, well, just cancel the whole thing, and he was really frustrated. And then I went out and really increased my carbs for three days because I said, screw that diet. And then I, I started to look amazing. I said, well, finally, you can, we can do the shoot now. <laughs> just because I, I had the carbs, the muscle looks fuller, and metabolic. And also, don't forget that. If you have carbs in you, you can train harder. Oh, yeah. Your performance is better. You have better leverage to lift. I mean, it, 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 to me, and, and I, I, I used to be a low carb guy, a low carb guy. But I, that's when I was more bodybuilding, and I didn't care about performance. Right, right. It, it, I've come to the conclusion that you can't perform at a high level without carbs. Obviously, the amount of carbs you need is dependent on the person, sure. and you can't build a significant amount of muscle naturally if you don't have carbs in your diet. It doesn't have to be a high amount, but you cannot build a lot of mass while natural if you're on a low-carb diet. I don't care what other people say. It's, on the short term, it might work just because of the metabolic shift of the diet, 
but I, I, from my experience, naturally you won't build muscle if you go low, like completely low carbs. Yeah, you don't see too many people sustaining a low carb diet for too long either. And then the ones that do tend to be overly caffeinated. You know, they're having ten cups of coffee a day. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Already they go binging out for like a few days or something. But also, I mean, the reason why, by I just want to say exactly why. Uh, you can't build muscle uh, because sure. what happens is that uh, you, you have an enzyme called AMPK that uh, when it's up, it turns off mTOR activation. And mTOR activation is what triggers protein synthesis. It's the, basically the light switch that turns on muscle building. So if mTOR is down, you can't build muscle. And AMPK antagonizes uh, mTOR. And one of the biggest stimulus for increasing AMPK is glycogen depletion. If your glycogen stores are depleted, then AMPK will go up, which means that mTOR goes down, which kills protein synthesis. That makes perfect sense. I mean, and, and, and even people who don't understand, understand the science have experienced that, yeah. just from what, exactly what you're talking about. You know, my, myself, the thing is that, you know, for a long time, uh, I was on the uskier side when I competed in Olympic weightlifting. At one point, I even had like a 42-inch waist. But let's say that, that that was excessive. But let's say that in my good lifting shape, I, I probably was like 15 or 16% body fat. But I was super strong. Because I, was, I was eating five hamburgers after every training session. I mean, it's stupid. I probably lost five years of my life doing that. <laughs> but I, I, I built a lot of muscle just because I was consuming so many calories. So I right, did right. build a lot of strength and size. So I, when I, I decided to go on a diet, the reason I, go, I went on a diet was after my first article was published on T-Nation, it was uh, on the Snatch. Yeah, I remember I that. pictures of myself in the article and some people – sent um, uh, emails to T.C. Lohmann and said, well, you will really let anybody write for you. <laughs> this guy doesn't even look like he trains. <laughs> so I had to go on a diet, low-carb diet. And uh, what happened is that I, I, I had a be much better body, obviously, when slain. So I deluded myself into thinking that I gained a lot of muscle. Now, and in some places, I might have gained some arms because when I was Olympic weightlifting, I didn't do any arms training and no right. upper body work, really. Right. And when I switched to bodybuilding, it was mostly upper body work. I didn't train legs because I was just back from six years of squatting twice every single day. Uh, but in reality, and I didn't measure my body fat, so I went only about look. So in reality, in 18 months... I probably didn't gain a single ounce of muscle. It's just the muscle that I already had that just was uncovered. Right. And I would I will call that muscle migration in that <laughs> I, I probably lost some muscle in the legs and gained some on the arms, but it's just because I had a, basically a beginner upper body right. because it was left unstimulated. But after that, every time I I went on a, on a low carbs diet, I always basically wasted a lot of time not building muscle yeah well hey man oh, this yeah. has been great we don't want to keep you on all day we'd love to have you come back sometime though because this sure is thing, a man. really fun conversation where, where can people find out more about your stuff we know you're prolific over at tnation.com but, but do you have your own website where 
Well, find out about your events. You know, I I just found out I had a website, <laughs> but uh, it's something that, that a fan, someone made it for you. <laughs> no, no, it's actually the the, the guy who uh, my editor who distributes my book okay. Oh, okay. came with that site a while ago, and it it will probably be revamped. But it, I I won't have any material on there because uh, I'm exclusive for Key Nation for articles. Okay. And so like that. But but uh, it will be used mostly to. Uh, to advertise my, my uh, seminars and stuff because I will be doing a lot more seminars uh, in, in the future. Like uh, I'm leaving in uh, two weeks for Singapore, then Hong Kong, uh, New York, London, Belfast, Denmark, stuff like that. Wow. So it's a big departure for me because I used to do a lot more coaching. So now it's gonna. I really love to teach. So hopefully that that's gonna turn out well. But yeah, if they want to see more uh, more information, it's really on T Nation that I publish my stuff. But they can follow me on, on Twitter at uh, Coach Tib. Uh, so that coach uh, that's uh, no that's Coach C underscore Tib on Twitter or on Facebook. They can follow me also Christian Thibodeau. And normally when I, I have news or um, like some tidbits, some tips, or pugs, photos. Your Prada <laughs> Chanel. Interesting. I just got a third pug yesterday. <laughs> I was looking at the names of your dogs, man. I was like, Prada, Chanel. I was like, okay, these dogs are living. They're living your dogs are living a good life. I have a man. wife. I have a wife. <laughs> and you know, I, I, yeah, you had some picture. You're like, hey, I'm still a oh, man. Oh, yeah, I saw guys, that right? one when he came <laughs> on the backwards, dog. Like, I'm still a man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, my marriage is, no, it's a democracy. <laughs> the, only reason, the only thing is that she has two votes. I have one. So Chanel Prada and Gucci is what it is. <laughs> well, hey, man, this has been great. If you if you come through Vegas at some point, let me know. It'd be great to catch up. Or otherwise, I hope to see you on the road somewhere too. I might actually take you up on that because my wife has been wanting to go there for a while. Oh yeah, you should definitely come out, man. It'd be great. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks again, man. You have a great one. Great conversation. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, really nice talking to you. All right. You take care. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. And that's again Christian Thibodeau, just a super wealth of knowledge. I mean, we could have yeah, just kept talking so to him. Notes. I just didn't want to keep so him on all day. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I'm like, okay, this is going beyond my normal amount of notes that I usually take. And I was like, wow. But I, it was so much good information. I didn't want to leave out some of these bullet points, man. Because so, I know right. a lot of our listeners. He's right, he's right up there yeah. with Poliquin as favorite of just a super wealth of information on so many fronts. So we'll, we'll definitely get him back again. But make sure you support his work, folks. Check out his articles at T Nation. Go buy his book. I think he does some consulting, online consulting, so make sure to hire him if you want to help him, if you want to have his help in revamping your training programs and getting you on the right course. Definitely. And at the same time, you can do the same thing with us <laughs> by you know supporting us as well as the show when we bring good guests on like Christian Thibodeau by heading over to both of our websites, MikeMahler.com as well as NewWarriorTraining.com. Use that coupon code LLA and get 10% off all of our products. That Hey, look here, man. If we sell it, if you can buy it, you can use that coupon code and you can get it. So utilize that bad boy. And if you don't want to utilize you want to buy everything at full price, we're good with that too. <laughs> we have no issues with that. So, yeah, head over yeah, if you want to go, that that's the extra yeah. step. If you want to be a VIP Plus <laughs> member, don't use the coupon code and just say in the notes, you know what, man, I want you to keep that money because I know I know you support a lot of good causes exactly. and this will go to that. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, man. So um, you can head over to NewWarriorTraining.com, get 10% off of my DVD, the ebook, as well as the weight management program that I was speaking about earlier in the program, and as well as the Cheerio Doors for all you coffee and tea lovers out there. So there you go. You can use that right there. What about over at your site, Mike? 
Yeah, you can use that coupon code LLA. Go get 10% off red, real energy dominators, my new supplement that a bunch of people are using now and looking forward to hearing people's feedback because it's great stuff. It's going to give you real energy support. So it's not going to be stimulatory, which wreaks havoc on your adrenal glands. As Christian mentioned, it's going to rejuvenate your adrenals and help with excess cortisol levels and balancing out your endocrinology. So go ahead and check that and also get the best testosterone booster around. ASTB, use that coupon code LLA, get 10% off at MikeMahler.com. And also you can head over to Patreon.com and become a supporter over there, be a VIP, support the show on a monthly basis with $5, $10, or like I said, any dollars after that. You can do that by going to Patreon.com slash LLA, LLA podcast. So I was going to change the LLA show, but it was going to be too much of a headache. So that is probably the one last thing you'll probably actually see LLA podcast because yeah, we're, we're still looking for our first $10,000. man. We've got a spot over here for you, man. We've got a co-producer spot waiting just for you. That's <laughs> why so you will be an executive producer. So, you know, like brought to you by executive producer, blah, blah, blah. It's the LLA show. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> a lot of these actors are doing the same you get thing. Co- you, get, you get to come on the sh- Yeah, you get to come on the show, be yeah, a co-pilot, yeah. you know, be, in a, be, in a, be an additional host every once in a while. <laughs> so, who wouldn't want to be that guy or that girl? <laughs> and last but not least, you can support us also by heading over to iTunes or going to Stitcher and tune in all of those great sites where you listen to the show and rate us, review us and share the episode from those sites as well. Oh, and also SoundCloud. Don't leave our SoundCloud listeners out there because usually whenever I post an episode, they're the first ones that are liking the episode and sharing the episode. So quick activity oh, over there at SoundCloud, man. So, yeah, you can catch us in all those places and help us by getting the word out from those spots. All right, man. All right, we're good. All right, we'll catch you on the next show. Take care, everybody. Take care, everyone. Bye.